When I first noticed there was a free full-length episode of a new HBO show in my YouTube feed, and that furthermore it was directed by Ridley Scott, I thought, hey, why not? Let's give it a watch. Although, to be honest, based on the thumbnail and some stills, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to think of it. The android silver bodysuits and matching helmets had a bit of a 1970s Doctor Who vibe, but the show quickly pulled me in. And I'm still not sure what the point of those kind of silly uh, looking helmets was. My pet theory is that maybe they were meant to shield sensitive components in the androids' heads from cosmic radiation during their journey through space or some such. Total conjecture, but I'm going with it. Maybe some producer just liked the way they looked. I mean, hey, in retrospect, they do kind of have that sleek minimalist design by Apple in California vibe didn't plan on spending that much time on the helmets. Uh, anyway, so the basic premise of the show is that two androids have been sent on a mission to seed human life on the extrasolar planet Kepler-22b, following the destruction of Earth. The cause of Earth's destruction being a massive war between atheists and the believers of some kind of Mithraic solar religion. It was the atheists who sent the androids to Kepler-22b. Despite their advancements, the Mithraic remain stunted by the tenets of their religion. For instance, they believe that allowing androids to raise human children is a sin, which forced them to send an ark outfitted with stasis pods rather than a lighter, faster craft such as the one atheists so wisely used to send us. Belief in the unreal can comfort the human mind, but it also weakens it civilization you're seeding here will be built on humanity's belief in itself, not an imagined deity. If, like myself, you have any kind of interest in ancient history and religion, you'll probably be somewhat familiar with the god Mithras. The origins of the Greco-Roman god Mithras can be traced back to the Persian deity Mitra, although there are significant differences in associated imagery and continuity. Mithraism, also known as the Mithraic Mysteries, was a Roman mystery religion that gained wide popularity around the time of the first century and was viewed as something of a rival to early Christianity. Mithras was linked to the Roman god Sol, a personification of the sun, and they were sometimes viewed as one and the same. Popular with the Roman army, Sol was also known as Sol Invictus, the unconquered or unconquerable sun. The names Mithras and Sol are both frequently invoked on the show by adherents of this future Mithraic religion. I have to admit, when I first realized that seemed like they were going for some kind of futuristic, technologically advanced Mithraic cult thing, it kind of tested my suspension of disbelief. But then I was like, hey, why not? I don't know how realistic the idea of an extinct cult becoming the world's dominant religion is. In a way, I actually think androids bringing fetuses and jars to term on Kepler-22b might be more believable. But I think the story, at least this is my take, and I don't think you have to really dig too deeply to find it. It's spelled out explicitly in the plot. Functions as a kind of allegory for the clash between belief and unbelief, religious belief and atheism, and Mithraism is just serving as a stand-in for one of the Abrahamic faiths or one of the world's other prominent religions. 
The weird thing is, whereas I think we would usually tend to associate scientific advancement with a logic and reason-based, even a kind of scientific materialist worldview, in this story, it seems to be implied that the believers may have been more technologically advanced than the atheists, or that at least they possess the more dominant culture, and thusly more resources. The believers left Earth in a giant vessel, as mentioned in that clip, known as the Ark of the Mithraic, and a Mithraic soldier comments that the atheists lack the means to build one of their own. And during flashbacks, it does seem to appear that the Mithraic may have held the technological upper hand during the war, while the atheists are depicted more like ragtag resistance or freedom fighters, maybe even terrorists from the Mithraic view, who due to either their technological inferiority or lack of resources even resort to using child soldiers. In fact, I just finished watching episode 8 while editing this, and it contains a flashback scene where a young atheist boy with an explosive belt detonates himself within a crowded Mithraic camp. Episode 9, which I also just finished watching, has me thinking that the series may take place in an alternate timeline where Christianity never became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire, losing out instead to Mithraism. There's a scene where one of the Mithraic children finds a relic in the wreckage of the Ark, a tooth the Mithraic believe belonged to Romulus, the mythic founder of Rome. It's hard to say who we're supposed to root for, and I imagine that's the intention. Both sides seem flawed and morally compromised. The believers are depicted as a bunch of blindly dogmatic crusaders and zealots, and the atheists, as previously stated, despite their professed humanist ideals, aren't above resorting to terrorism, even using children as suicide bombers. And at least in the case of the two atheist androids, are seemingly too quick to snuff out any kind of emerging spirituality in the children they care for in their small, struggling colony. I wonder if the moral of the story will end up being, and keep in mind yours truly being a non-believer, that both sides are too rigid and that humanity at its best dwells somewhere in the middle, avoiding either extremes. On the one hand, hard atheism that doesn't allow for any kind of spiritual expression, and on the other, the tyranny and irrationality of blind dogmatic religious devotion. And one of the things I really love about the show is how fleshed out, nuanced, and complex the characters are. Just as I said it doesn't seem clear which side we're supposed to root for, I think the same thing applies to the individual characters. As in real life, the characters aren't monolithically good or evil, they have their strengths and flaws. But I would say so far, the star of the show for me is definitely the female android known as Mother, portrayed by Danish actress Amanda Collin. And how do I say this without it sounding unintentionally insulting or inappropriate? But Amanda Collin has a very interesting body, for lack of a better word. So much so that when I first saw her on screen, I seriously thought that they had used CGI to intentionally give her a more androgynous looking figure. Maybe they may have bound her chest or something, I'm not sure. But I've seen pictures of her, and I think that's pretty much her her body or her figure. And once again, that's not a bad thing. She has her own unique look and physique, and I think it works perfectly for her character. She and her male counterpart both wear skin-tight silver bodysuits, and whenever she's on screen, 
not even necessarily in a sexual way, but I just find myself kind of looking at her and admiring this kind of pleasing yet unusual or strangely interesting appearance she has. And I'm not trying to make her sound like a circus freak. She's certainly not the first or only small-chested woman in existence. Uh, but let's see if anyone comes at me for daring to comment on an actress's body. Stop digging the hole you're in, Phil, and continue with the review. So moving on, I think Mother is probably the most complex and compelling character in the show. Shortly into the first episode, there's this strangely touching moment where the male and female androids, mother and father, now on Kepler-22b, begin bringing the fetuses they've brought with them to term. There's tubes running from mother, the female android's torso, into jars containing the gestating fetuses. And there's this tender moment where the male android hands off uh, an unresponsive fetus or infant to mother, and she lovingly holds it to her chest and somehow manages to bring it back from the brink of death. This moment marks or exemplifies one of Mother's most defining characteristics, her strong, sometimes even fierce, to put it mildly, maternal instinct. From the beginning, we can see signs that Mother may be unstable or even dangerous, and it's eventually revealed, spoiler alert, that she's actually a Mithraic android reprogrammed by the atheists. Specifically, she's an extremely powerful and deadly type of model known as a necromancer. And maybe I'm sick, but I absolutely love when Mother takes on her necromancer form and kind of flies or runs around killing people. Her necromancer form kind of has an old school Doctor Who vibe too, basically a gold or bronze flying naked lady, but it works. And despite how unhinged and, well, downright homicidal she is or can be, especially in her necromancer form, I think Mother still remains sympathetic due to the aforementioned strong maternal nature of her character. In fact, the first time we see her unleash her powers is when she's trying to stop a group of Mithraic men who also landed on Kepler-22b from abducting or harming her child, Campion. There seems something almost strangely biblical or symbolic about the fact that once Mother discovers her powers, from then on, she has to literally hide her eyes when not using said power, and even warns one of the children not to look at her when they see her in her transformed state. I think arguably the closest we have to a thoroughly good and ethical character so far is Mother's male counterpart, the android known as Father, portrayed by the very likable and charismatic Abu Bakr Salim. Hopefully that's how it's pronounced. Like an actual dad, he sometimes gets angry or stern, but usually with good reason. And he even tells dad jokes. What did the male magnet say to the female magnet? So what did the male magnet say? He said, when I saw your backside, I was repelled. However, after seeing you from the front, I now find you very attractive. And while on the subject of the father character, as an animal lover, I couldn't help but notice that there seems to be an ongoing animal ethics theme to the show. Kepler-22b is for all intents and purposes a barren world with meager resources, but the small struggling colony does encounter a race of quick-moving, spindly yet terrifying alien creatures. Father manages to trap one in a small building or shelter, and after careful deliberation decides he's going to kill it in order to use its meat to feed the children. 
Both Campion, the last surviving child who developed from the fetuses he and mother brought with them, as well as a group of Mithraic children that mother, shall we say, procured. When Campion, who mother describes as having a highly pronounced sense of empathy, finds out father plans on killing the creature, he passionately objects. What are you making? It's a weapon, isn't it? I thought we weren't allowed to make weapons. That is going to change. I'm going to use this to kill the creature so that you and the others can eat it. What do you mean? You can't kill it. You don't want your new friends to starve, do you? No, but I'll find something else we can eat. Just give me a little time. Mother and I have scoured the forest many times over the years. There's nothing out there. Yes, but I'm hungry and it will make me look harder. It will cloud your thinking if it hasn't already. Just let me try, Father. It's forever. Death is forever when you're an animal. Death is forever for all organic life forms, Campion. Fine. Whatever you want me to say, I'll say it. Just please, let me try and find something else we can eat. It's a waste of time and calories. But if it will help a climate change. Come on then. Let's get to it, Father. I believe Campion gets the idea that animals don't have souls from the Mithraic children. The religious claiming that animals don't have souls has always been one of my pet peeves. Don't get me wrong, I'm an atheist, technically agnostic atheist. I doubt the existence of an immortal soul altogether. But there just seems to be something so cold and arrogantly presumptuous about someone assuming they're deserving of a soul but not other creatures. I find it touching that rather than making him devalue the creature as lesser, Campion's assumption that it doesn't have a soul makes him want to preserve its life all the more. After Campion and Father fail to find a non-animal food source, Father, desiring to teach the children self-sufficiency, decides that they should kill the creature themselves. He offers a spear, first angrily to Campion after finding him attempting to free the creature, and orders that he go in and kill it. Campion refuses, and so Father then gathers the Mithraic children and demands that a volunteer from among them should come forward and kill it. A girl steps up and spears it, but disturbed by the creature's cries and what she's done, runs back home along with Campion and the other children, leaving Father calling angrily after them. Tempest, a pregnant Mithraic girl from the group, sneaks out under the cover of dark and, driven by hunger, finishes the wounded creature off and proceeds to gorge herself on the creature's bloody flesh. Struck with horror and regret, she realizes that the creature had been pregnant and she walks out of the enclosure holding an unborn fetus in her hands. With what seems to be a mix of shock and sorrow, she shows it to Father, saying that it had been pregnant like her. Rendered speechless, Father simply looks at Tempest and the fetus with a troubled countenance. Campion refuses to eat the meat, while some of the other children, seemingly not as burdened by moral reservations, dig in and even compare it to pork. A Mithraic boy named Paul helps Campion finally locate a non-animal food source he can eat, a kind of edible fungus that he can use as a food staple. If you're a regular listener, then it will probably come as no surprise that I appreciated the show's exploration of animal ethics. This same Mithraic boy, Paul, had also seen Campion burying the creature's bones in the sand and attempted to remind him that it's not necessary because animals don't have souls. This time, Campion states that he thinks everything has a soul, even mother and father, maybe even the rocks and the trees. 
This seeming reference to animism made me think again that there may be a message or theme here, that there is a natural impulse in man towards the spiritual or a belief in agency that's not easily snuffed out or repressed, not even if you're raised on another planet by atheist androids. There's an earlier scene where Father walks in on Campion with his eyes closed and hands raised in the air and warns, don't let Mother catch you praying. And so Viking star Travis Fimmel is also in Raised by Wolves. I'm a big fan of the show Vikings. I used to be a stickler for historical accuracy, but I've learned to loosen up in that regard and just kind of enjoy the ride. And that's my attitude towards Vikings. It's chock full of historical inaccuracies and can get pretty outlandish at times, but I love the characters and it's a really fun and compelling show. And I absolutely love Travis Fimmel as the legendary Viking Ragnar Lothbrook. And I used to wonder how much of Fimmel's performance was contrived and how much was his own personality coming through. Because Ragnar has a lot of idiosyncratic gestures, tics and mannerisms, etc. And I also used to wonder about the accents we'd hear on the show. I know some of the actors on Vikings were or are actually Scandinavian, while others are from England, Australia, or the States. And they all seem to be trying to approximate some kind of vague Nordic accent. I've heard some say that maybe it sounds closest to Icelandic. I don't know. And so I was really excited when I learned that Travis Fimmel was also in Raised by Wolves. Not only because I like him as an actor, but also because I was like, okay, maybe now we're going to get to hear what he really sounds like. And he still sounds like Ragnar Lothbrook, even though he's from Australia. I'm exaggerating a bit to some degree for the uh, sake of humor, but he does still kind of sound like Ragnar. Maybe it's just me, or maybe I'm missing something, like a working brain and ears. But yeah, he doesn't really sound Australian on the show, but maybe he's affecting an accent for the character. The director or producers could have told him to dial back his natural accent. And speaking of accents, the creator, Aaron Guzikowski, is actually from Brockton, Mass., so we're both from the Boston area. And at least one of the battle scenes takes place in Boston. There were no Boston or New England accents in the show that I can remember, though, and that's probably for the best. I do my best to uh, suppress my accent, to round off all my R's or whatever, and it probably still comes through. Oh, pisser, there's a flying robot lady and she blew up my car. You know? But as expected, Travis Fimmel does a really good job on the show. And I did notice some of those idiosyncratic gestures, etc. carry over. So they must just be his natural mannerisms. And I know I've probably already buried you in spoilers, but yeah, maybe I'll refrain from giving away too much about his role. Is he an atheist? Is he Mithraic? I'll leave it to you to discover. But I'll have to remember to include a picture of a burnt-up medical droid. Yeah, I know, that's Star Wars. That Fimmel's character encounters. Absolute nightmare fuel. And while on the subject of Travis Fimmel's character, mullets. Everyone, everywhere. Mullets. Everyone has mullets in the future. What comes around goes around, as they say. Uh, but seriously, there are a number of characters who have short bangs, shaved sides, and long hair in the back. Actually, didn't Ragnar have long hair with uh, shaved sides for a while? Business in the front, party in the back. 
Uh, but on that irreverent note, I guess that concludes this review of Raised by Wolves. Oh, and I almost forgot. Uh, one of the first things I noticed when watching the show, the androids, quote unquote, bleed the same gross white fluid as the androids in the Alien movies. And so, as I mentioned earlier, the first two episodes were directed by Ridley Scott, and he's also one of the producers. I'm not sure if the white, quote-unquote, blood, for lack of a better term, was meant as just a clever Easter egg, or if the series is supposed to take place in the same universe as the Alien movies. And also, after watching episodes 8 and 9, it does seem like, you know, certain characters are becoming more clearly defined as protagonists, mother and father among them. Uh, there are some touching reunion scenes between them and the kids. Hopefully that's not too much of a spoiler, but it works for me because they're my two favorite characters. But yeah, Raised by Wolves, a very thought-provoking and compelling show. Check it out if you want. As always, thanks for listening.